The scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. It can be found on page 927 in the Black Bibles. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them, the word of the Lord. Lincoln, Katie, thank you all for reading for us. Um, a lot of y'all may know Link uh, was a pastor here at Christ the King, and Katie was really instrumental in uh, our counseling center growing and developing, and it's just really special to have y'all here, so thanks for being here with us. Uh, we've had a couple uh, different folks involved in the worship service this morning. Uh, Leo Schuster, our founding pastor, was here at the first service and uh, was able to lead us in our liturgy, and that was really special to have him here. He's uh, now preaching at uh, City Church, another church he's planted here in this city. Uh, but it was really special to have him and Clay and Andres and, and so many others involved um, in our service this morning because, as you may have heard, we're celebrating our 25th birthday as a church. Um, and I hope that you'll, you'll join us after our service as we celebrate God's faithfulness to this church. It's, it's tempting to look back on a, uh, on a moment in our life as a church like this and to think, man, like, look what we did. This is so great. Um, but one of the things that we believe here is that the main person who's at work in our church, in our lives, is God. It's actually not us. We're not the main ones at work, although we often live as if that's true, like we're the ones who are primarily at work. It's probably one of the reasons that so many of us are control freaks or helicopter parents or stressed out or anxious because we think that we're in control. But the good news uh, of the Bible is that God is the one who is primarily at work. And that does two things. One, when things are going particularly well, it reminds us to stay humble, right? Because God is the one who's been at work, not us. But also, when things are maybe going poorly or seem hopeless, we aren't without hope because we believe that God is still at work. God's at work. He's the hero of the story. But him being the hero of the story doesn't mean that we're zeros. God actually welcomes us to participate in the work that he's doing. That's what he's done in his church. And so as we celebrate today, 
uh, God's faithfulness to us and to his church. I hope that you'll join us. But also, as we look at this passage this morning, I hope that we'll be reminded of who our faithful God is. So let's pray and ask him to help us in that. Lord, we do give you thanks that we can open your scriptures now and that you uh, have given them to us to remind us of your love and care for us, um, that you are a God who welcomes us um, to you and gathers us to yourself. And we pray that you would help us now by the power of your spirit to see our need for you and your great provision of all that we need. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As Andres was saying, it's the beginning of Holy Week, this week that Jesus walks into a city. And his reception there is, the reaction is dizzying, actually, because at first he's warmly received and celebrated. Hosanna in the highest, welcome, praise to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But that he's also welcomed into a city where there's division, where he's rejected, and where there's violence against him. And a similar thing happens to Jesus's follower, Paul, as he enters city after city in the book of Acts. And both Palm Sunday and Acts 18 point to this truth. God in the flesh is a God who pursues sinners. We see that in Jerusalem, but also God by his spirit in Acts 18 isn't done pursuing sinners. So, Three points for you this morning. First, I want you to know who the Corinthians were. Second, who God is. And third, so what? Who the Corinthians were, who God is, and so what? Well, Paul has just left kind of the intellectual center of the Roman Empire, Athens. And now he's traveled to a place which would have been the commercial center of Rome, particularly in that region. This place called Corinth, it was a much bigger city. It was a, much, it was a very wealthy city. There was a lot happening because Corinth was, was positioned on, this is a great word, this isthmus, which there's some little geography for you this morning. It's a tiny strip of land that connects two large bodies of water uh, on either side. And this isthmus that Corinth was situated on made it an, a particularly prosperous city because there was a port to their west and a port to their east, and they were just in the center of it. So there, it was a trade center. There was a lot of business happening in and out of Corinth, and also it was on, along a north-south trade route as well. Uh, so it was a city that worked hard, but it was also a city that played hard. They had every two years, really similar to the Olympic Games, something that were called the Isthmian Games, where people from all over Rome would come and they would watch athletes compete in events, just like in the Olympics. And so Corinth was this place that worked hard and played hard. It was a place that became really prosperous after, um, after Julius Caesar, or after Rome had sacked the city and destroyed it, Julius Caesar recolonized it in 60 BC. And he, he quite smartly recolonized it with two types of people, former soldiers and former slaves. Because he knew that former soldiers and former slaves would work hard in that city to make it prosperous. And they did. So it's filled with a city that is wealthy, filled with upwardly mobile people, filled with diversity, economic diversity, religious diversity, ethnic diversity. Is this sounding like a city that you've heard of before? Maybe a little bit, commercial city, port city? All right, just checking. 
But there's another commonality that they had with our city, and it's that it was a city known for its sexual immorality. Houston, um, which uh, perhaps our sexual immorality is a bit more cloaked behind things like our gentlemen's clubs and the underbelly of human trafficking um, and the sex trade where our city acts as a major port. Houston may be a bit more discreet. Corinth was not. They were open with their sexual immorality. In fact, the pinnacle of their city sat above the entire city was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the Greek god of love, or Venus for the Romans. And every night, a thousand women who were slaves would descend from their temple into the city to practice their religion as prostitutes. And people flocked to Corinth because of that. It was a city known for its immorality. It was a little bit like Vegas, like what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. People came from all over the place to go to Corinth. It was so... um, It was so known throughout the Roman world that Corinth kind of became a verb. People would use the word um, Corinth to describe being immoral. You're Corinthianizing. Corinth was this notorious city, notorious for its wayward morals. It was a sailor's town, you know, had rough sailors and crooked merchants and immoral pagans. And yet that's the city where God says, I want you to go there. I I want you to go there, Paul. He sends Paul to this immoral, pagan place. And so Paul shows up in verse 4. He does what he's apt to do whenever he shows up to a city. He goes to the synagogue, and he begins to try to persuade people about who Jesus is. He's speaking to the Jews. He's speaking to the Greeks. And in verse 5, it says, Paul testified to the Jews that the Christ or the Messiah, was this man named Jesus of Nazareth. That's what Paul wants them to know. But many of them reject it. They reject what Paul is saying. In verse 6, you see, it says they opposed and reviled him. And so Paul shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own hands, I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. People have read passages like this and other passages Um, interactions between Paul and and the Jews, or even Jesus and the Jews, and they've used it for anti-Semitic messages. Like Paul was done with the Jews in this passage. But that is a bad reading of Scripture. And one of the ways that uh, the church throughout centuries has made sure to interpret Scripture rightly is by doing something that we call the rule of faith. This is an ancient practice in the Christian church. And what the rule of faith states is that if you come to a passage of scripture that seems confusing, maybe you don't know what it's talking about, go to other passages of scripture that talk about the same subject, the same topic, but talk about it in a more clear, understandable way and look at what that scripture says and then apply what that clear teaching says to what maybe seems a little bit more hazy and it brings clarity to what all of scripture is saying on an issue. So are the scriptures anti-Semitic? Is Paul anti-Semitic? Read Romans 9. I mean, in Romans 9, Paul is talking to, about his Jewish brothers and sisters and longing for them to come to know who Jesus is. In fact, he, Paul says 
so emphatically, he says, I would be cut off from Christ if it meant that you would know him. Paul is not anti-Semitic. What he is, is he wants, he wants the Jews to know their Messiah. He wants them to know who Jesus is. And so what he does when he dusts off his garments, which would have been akin to um, in other parts of the scriptures where um, the disciples might dust their sandals off of a city that's rejected the good news of Jesus. The Jews in the synagogue would have known what Paul's communicating with that action because it was actually a Jewish practice dusting off your sandals or your robe. What they would, the, the way the Jews would practice this is if they went to a Gentile city or in a Gentile place or home, after leaving, what they would do is they would dust off their sandals or dust off the garment, showing that they were ceremonially separated from that unclean place that they had been in. So what, what is Paul demonstrating then as he's in the synagogue in Corinth, dusting himself off after they've rejected Jesus? You know what he's saying? You are just like the Gentiles. You're no better. You're no better than the Gentiles in Corinth. Like, you're no better. Religious people who come to the synagogue every week, you can come every single week and gather here. But if you reject Jesus as Messiah, you're no better. Because it's only by Jesus that we are saved. You see, Paul is giving them a heavy dose of bad news here. A heavy dose of bad news saying, listen, you're like everyone else. You're just as in need of a savior as everyone else. And if you reject him, you're just like everyone else. He's giving them the bad news. But in order to understand how good the good news is, we've got to believe the bad news is true. Grace isn't amazing until your sin is. You see, Paul's not done with the Jews. In fact, in verse 8, this guy named Crispus, which is a delicious name, Crispus, who is a ruler of the synagogue, he's a Jew, he's a ruler of the synagogue, he hears the bad news about himself, and now he knows he needs a Savior. Crispus becomes a follower of Jesus. And this is the key, y'all. You don't understand how much you need Jesus until you realize you have nothing apart from him. Grace isn't amazing until your sin is. To illustrate this idea, I want to read to you an article that was written um, soon after South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission was held following um, apartheid that happened in South Africa. If you're unfamiliar with Apartheid, this was a time in South Africa's history where there was much persecution shown towards men and women of color living in that country. And this is uh, one reporter reports, uh, Stanley Green reports an incident that happened during one of the cases following, um, following Apartheid's downfall. In an emotionally charged courtroom, a South African woman stood listening to white police officers acknowledge their atrocities. Officer Vandebroek acknowledged that along with others, he had shot her 18-year-old son at point-blank range. He and the others partied while they burned the son's body, turning it over and over on the fire until it was reduced to ashes. Eight years later, Vandebroek and others returned to seize her husband. She was forced to watch her husband bound on a woodpile as they poured gasoline over his body and ignited the flames that consumed him. 
the last words she heard her husband say were, forgive them. Now Vandebroek awaited judgment. South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission asked the woman what she wanted. I want three things, she said calmly. First, I want Mr. Vanderbroek to take me to the place where they burned my husband's body. I'd like to gather up the dust and give him a decent burial. Second, Mr. Vanderbroek took all my family away from me, and I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. Third, I would like Mr. Vanderbroek to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. I would like to embrace him so he can know my forgiveness is real. And as the elderly woman was led across the courtroom, Vanderbroek fainted, overwhelmed. Someone began singing Amazing Grace and gradually everyone joined in. Grace isn't amazing until your sin is. That is a picture of God's grace towards sinners. Sinners who completely do not merit any thread of grace, but instead sinners and enemies who have brought ruin and pain are welcomed with forgiveness. That is a picture of the grace of God that this dear woman gives to us. Y'all, this is who God is. God is a faithful parent, a faithful father. Second point, who God is, a faithful father. If you've talked to a parent of a child who's maybe left the faith or has maybe even left their family. You talk to a parent of a child like that and you know, you can see written on their face, many of these parents' face, a deep longing to be reconciled, a deep longing to be restored. And God is that kind of parent. He's the kind of parent who will not lose any who belong to him. And so in verse 10, God wants to make sure that Paul doesn't leave yet. He doesn't want Paul to leave Corinth yet. Why? Look at verse 9. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Don't leave yet, Paul. I know you may want to leave. Don't leave yet. Why? There's a lot of people who are still mine. They belong to me. They're here. Well, how can God say he has people in this city? How does God know that? Does this mean God has already chosen some in Corinth who are going to follow him? Yes, it does. God has people that he desires to pour out his grace and favor on and they don't deserve it. They don't even believe in him yet. And he tells Paul, you stay right here because I've got people here and they need to hear from you. Y'all, this is not uncommon in the book of Acts. All throughout the book of Acts, 
Luke, who's writing Acts, writes and acknowledges that God is intimately involved in our salvation. He actually is sovereign over it. He's ruling over it. Listen to how it's described in a few passages from Acts. Acts 11, verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God has granted repentance that leads to life. How will the Gentiles repent? How will they turn from their disobedience to obedience? Who will make that happen? God. He's at work. God grants repentance that leads to life. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard the gospel, they began rejoicing and believing, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Every single person that God had appointed to eternal life, he wasn't going to lose them. He's a, he's a faithful father who, although his, his kids may be running the opposite way, they may spit in his face, they may hate him, God is not going to lose them. He is a faithful father. Here, here it's described by Luke in a more individual in, um, uh, instance with Lydia. Acts 16, verse 14, we read about this a couple weeks ago. One who heard us sharing the gospel was a woman named Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. How did Lydia hear? God intervened. Lydia doesn't hear unless the Lord opens, not just her ears, it says the Lord opened her heart to hear the good news of Jesus. What had Lydia done to deserve that? Nothing. It's sheer grace. Now maybe, all right, we're, we're gonna talk about some, maybe some of y'all are in the, in the crowd and you're thinking like, this sounds weird. I'm not sure I agree with this. I hear you, okay? I hear you. So let me address a couple questions that you may have. And also, we've got the CTK Fest out and I'll be out there for a couple hours if you wanna come talk about this stuff. But what about, okay, John, what about John 3.16? For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him, he will, will not perish, but will have everlasting life. What about that? What about God loving the world? And anyone can come to him. Okay, yes. But we have to apply the rule of faith to that verse, just like we do with everyone else. So, We've just read a whole bunch of verses and there's a whole lot of other verses in the Bible that talk about God's sovereign authority over salvation. So when we read John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, is it, is it saying that every single person in the world, God's waiting for them to come to him? Is that what it's saying? Or should we read that word world slightly differently? And I'm not being like a wordsmith with this because we all use the word world in multiple kinds of ways, okay? Think about when the Olympics happened a few months ago. It was a few months ago, like no one watched it this year. Why was that? Anyway, but when, when we turned on the Olympics and the announcer was like saying with hope in his you know, bated breath, like I hope this is actually happening, the world is watching as these athletes gather in this Coliseum. Okay, was the world watching? Kinda not, 
But like, was the world watching in another sense? People from every tribe, tongue, nation, all these different countries from all over the world, was the world watching? Yes. The world was watching, but that doesn't mean every single individual person in the world was watching. And what have we seen throughout the book of Acts? Again, applying the rule of faith. Who has God come to save? He has come to save the world. Like the first thing that happens when at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon God's people, is people from all these different languages, all these different tribes and tongues, hear the gospel message in their own language because the gospel's for the world. It's for all kinds of people. That whoever, for God so loved the world, that whoever believes in him will not perish. So that's the question though. Whoever believes in him, how do we even believe? How do we even believe if our hearts are predisposed to being closed off towards him, to rejecting God, to being like the Corinthians, or to being like the Jews who were rejecting the message of Jesus and having the dust shaken off on them and being told the bad news about them, which is that you're just like everyone else. How does our heart open? God does it. How do we believe God intercedes? He snatches us up by his own grace. I want you to think how encouraging this would have been to the Corinthian church. Like for Paul to say, hey, listen, I was about to leave you guys, but I ended up staying for a year and a half. That's what it says here. He says for another year and a half. Why? Because God he wasn't done with y'all. He wanted you to hear. How encouraging for the person who's like, man, back then, for the Christian, the person who maybe became a Christian after this vision, for them to hear that God was so determined for them to come to know Jesus when they were worshiping in the temple of Aphrodite, when they were so far from ever believing in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, that God was so determined that he told Paul to stay so that they could be rescued. He told Paul, don't leave yet. How encouraging for them to hear that before they had done anything, before they had lifted a finger to ask for grace, God was already on the move to show it to them. And this squares with what we read in the rest of Scripture. What Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And even, listen, even the faith is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. You are loved because you're His even when you haven't done anything to make that so. I, I, I'll illustrate with this. My, um, we've got three girls in the trap house, and when they were young, I began doing something that I heard another pastor tell me that he did with his daughters, um, because I, I just I want them to know that I love them. And so I sit, my, sit one of my daughters down on um, her bed, and I kind of kneel in front of her, and I'm like, okay, sweetheart, why do I love you? You know what her answer was? Because I'm pretty. That's what she said. (laughs) I was like, whoa, and humble too, right? Uh, But also, that is a terrifying answer for my daughter to believe. What if my daughter believed that I loved her because she was pretty? How tragic 
for her to believe that in order for dad to love me, I have to be pretty. And so we had this liturgy that we began going through together. This little call and response. Sweetheart, do I think you're pretty? Yeah. Is that why I love you? Nope. I think you're smart? Yeah. Is that why I love you? Nope. I think you're creative? Yeah. Is that why I love you? Nope. On and on and on and on. All kinds of different stuff. Then finally the key question. Why do I love you, sweetheart? Because I'm your girl. That's the answer I taught her to say. You love me because I'm yours. What changes that? Nothing. It can't change. I love you because you're mine. Why does God love us? Because we're his. We're his kid. And now maybe you're visiting this church like, man, Presbyterians sound arrogant. We're gods and you're not. That's not what I'm saying. That is not what I'm saying. Do you know what this means? If we are saved because we belong to him and we haven't done anything about it, do you know what we can brag about? Nothing. We didn't do anything to earn his favor. It's what Paul says right after, right after he describes how we're saved by grace through faith. He says, for about you, Ephesians 2, 8, and then verse 9, for it's by grace we are saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. We can stand on nothing to boast about, save the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all him. He's the hero of our salvation. He's the one who accomplishes it, accomplishes it. He's the one who gives us the faith to believe. He's the one who even opens up our heart so that we can believe. So maybe you hear that and you're like, that's not fair. And I feel that question. I, that, is, that is the question I wrestle with, to be honest with you. But when I find myself really focused on that question, do you know what I'm doing? I am tipping my hand that I don't think I'm actually that guilty or anyone else is. I'm tipping my hand that, um, that I, I think God is, um, is overreacting to sin. But I want you to Go back to the Officer Vanderbroek story for a second. I want you to imagine, because it said, it said in the story that there are multiple police officers. Imagine another one of those police officers is standing by Officer Vanderbroek, and this frail old lady who lives in the ghetto who has just said, I forgive Officer Vanderbroek, and I want to adopt him as my son. What if she, if she only extended that invitation and grace to Officer Vanderbroek, who in that courtroom would say, what a monster that lady is? How dare she not? How dare she not extend that same grace to the other police officer who also murdered her husband and her son and burned them alive? You wouldn't say that. The question would not be, why doesn't she extend grace to both? It would be the question that was in that room. Why does she extend grace to any? That's the question. That is the mystery, that the Lord would show grace to any of us. We don't deserve it. 
And yet it's by grace that we're saved, not by what we do. Do you know how good that news is? Because we didn't do anything to earn it, we can't do anything to lose it. Because you're just his. Praise the Lord. When we question, when we question this, we are reminded instead that it's God's grace. It's God's grace we should be asking the question about. How is it that he could save any of us? He didn't have to. Jesus didn't have to ride into Jerusalem on that donkey knowing that five days later all these people who are hyping me up, who are shouting praise to me, who are waving their palm fronds, all of these people are about to be shouting crucify him. The same people. And yet he does. That's the mystery of who God is. That the one who knows He knows that he will be rejected and crucified. He still goes into the city on Palm Sunday for them. And you know what else? This this part is crazy to me. I've just been thinking about this a lot since studying through the book of Acts. So when Jesus is on the cross, one of the things he says is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I think God answers that prayer. Because just 50 days later at Pentecost, when Peter stands up to preach his sermon and to tell all these people in Jerusalem who were involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. And he begins preaching to them. And he begins talking about, by the way, the predestined plan of God that the Lord Jesus would go and be crucified for us. When he begins talking about that, he's talking to the ones who've done it. Listen, Acts 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He says, listen, this was part of God's plan. He predestined that it would happen. You're responsible for it. You did it. And they, they say, what do we do? And you know what he says? The one that you killed, who's now alive, repent to him. He's already prayed to his father, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And God answers yes to that prayer. 3,000 people who had hated Jesus, who had rejected Jesus, they repent and turn to gracious King Jesus for salvation when they didn't deserve it. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, what if I'm not on the list? I want to be on the list. What if I'm not on it? If you want to be on it, do you know what that means? God's at work in your heart. Because our hearts otherwise are closed off to the gospel. Do not fret that question. If you want to cry out, if you cry out to the Lord for mercy, his answer is yes. And you can look back on the day that you cried out for mercy and you can say, you know what? God even did that. He gave me the strength. He gave gave me the faith to believe for it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this faith is not your own doing, Paul says. The faith is not your own doing. It's a gift from God. Not a result of work so that no one can boast. 
Or what John says later in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. We, couldn't, we wouldn't love him if he didn't first love us, but he did. So what? A couple quick takeaways. Maybe you're sitting here thinking like, well, if, he's just gonna, if he just has a plan, like why pray? Why should I pray? But my question back to you, particularly if you, if you would really bristle at this teaching of, um, of God's kind of sovereign care over all of our salvation, my question back to you is, why pray if you don't believe God's at work in someone's salvation? Like, why pray if you think that God is hands-off when it comes to salvation? Because if he's, if he's hands-off when it comes to salvation, he's not gonna do anything with your prayers. He can't, he, he can't. it's against the rules. But if God... If God is the one who does the rescuing, if he's the one who dispenses grace, not us, if he is the one who is at work, then you come to the one who's at work. And perhaps your prayers will be the means by which he accomplishes his work. You're not the hero, but you're not the zero. You're not the hero of the story, but you're welcome to be involved in it. You're part of it. Maybe, maybe the question is similar. Like, why, if God already has his people, why evangelize? Hmm? I mean, like, he's already got his list in Corinth. But do you see how, what Paul's response is? Paul doesn't hear that and say, oh, cool, you have people? You said there's, you have people here? So I'm just going to move to the next city then because, like, if you have people here, they're eventually going to become Christians and, like, you don't need me. But his reaction to that is not to dismiss what God's told him. Instead, he's energized by it. He's energized because he knows that God is the one who's going to do the work and we get to participate in it. So we can do that and not be afraid and not be silent, but to speak and tell others the good news of King Jesus. And you know what that means? He can save anyone. He can save anyone. And you know how you know that? You're saved. And I am. That means he can save anyone. And if he's the one who's at work, he can do it. And so let's ask him to. Let's pray that he would. And let's participating in it, with him doing it. Ask, the, ask someone to, to church next, next week, Easter. We're in Houston. People go to church on Easter, you know? Maybe, maybe they'll just come. Ask them to come and hear the good news about the resurrection of Jesus. God can do it. Let's pray that he will. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you are the one who is at work. Um, and we pray that you would help us to faithfully participate in it because of the grace that you have poured out to us when we didn't deserve it. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.